Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to John 17. We're continuing our kind of slow slog through the Gospel of John. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 17. And before we read them and take a look at them, I invite you to bow your hearts in prayer with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are delighted that we can come to this great prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ to you, our Father in Heaven. And as we see what He prayed about and look at these realities, we ask that you would stir within us, uh, in our hearts, what we need, that you would cause us to love you more, that you would cause us to become more a people more dedicated to you and to your glory. And we ask that you would save any who don't know you and grant that all of us who do would more and more become like Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, John 17, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives uh, this morning. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone uh, listening uh, this day, uh, as we uh, walk through this uh, passage in John 17, we'll notice verses 1 through 5. It kind of divides out fairly easily as Jesus' prayer for his own glory and his Father's glory. Next paragraph in your ESV translation, you'll see Jesus praying for his disciples. And then after that, the last bit is Jesus praying for all believers that would hear the word through the disciples. So that's sort of a, a general outline of the prayer. And there's no other passage in all of the Bible like this. Now we see Jesus praying to his Father. Father, thank you that you've revealed these things. As uh, so We get snippets of prayer, but nothing like this, where we see God the Son in the flesh praying to God the Father and sort of bearing his own soul uh, before his Father who is in heaven. And I know we call Matthew 6 that we read this morning the Lord's Prayer. You could really actually call that the Disciples' Prayer. It's what we as disciples pray. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus' prayer uh, that he prayed to his heavenly Father. And what we see here is the sweet communion that's displayed between Father and Son. It's a communion they enjoyed before creation ever began, and it's being enjoyed right here in front of his disciples. And uh, it's incredible. We might have, one, one person put it this way, we might have expected massive Greek words, <laughs> like incredible vocabulary. And it's, the, the, it's very simple words, actually, with incredible meaning and vast depth to it but very simple language. And we're told Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven, uh, which again, uh, people have debated, do I bow my head and close my eyes like we often do, or do I lift my eyes up to heaven? You can't get that Jesus prayer to his father is unique. None of us are Jesus, but he's got this tremendous access to his father in heaven. He looks up to heaven and offers up this prayer. And he says, and I want to deal with this in the introduction, Father, the hour has come. I want to camp on that word hour just a little bit here. Because... 
Previously, we've noticed in John when Mary came to him regarding, hey, we've got a crisis at this incredible party, this wedding feast. He says, look, what, what to me and what to you, this, this is not my hour. It's not yet my time. Don't talk to me about this. And all the way through chapter 7, uh, uh, verse 6, verse 8, verse 30, and chapter 8, verse 20, we're told the hour has not yet come. But then beginning of verse 12, there's a shift where Jesus is talking about the hour has come. And now Jesus says the hour has come as well. And we're within a few hours of this. This is again, Thursday night, probably into the wee hours of Friday morning at this point. He's going to be on the cross. We'll be within about 12 hours here. His hours come. And he's anticipating that occasion that's been decreed from all eternity when he will have to go all the way to the cross. And in John's gospel, the hour has at least to do with the crucifixion of Jesus, but likely maybe all the events around it, the crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection as well. But it's, it's the pinnacle. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. It's the moment that all redemptive history has been waiting for. Now, we're all familiar with hours, right? Like the actor has an hour. When the cameraman, the news anchor, sees that light on the camera, the hour's arrived. It's, it's go time. Whether you're prepared or not, you got to have something to say. Every pastor has the hour when Sunday hits. College uh, football teams have their hour, right? They work hard all year. They sweat. They bleed. They practice. They fight together. They arrive in the BCS Championship Bowl. And when does the hour arrive? When that football leaves the tee. And it's kickoff time. It's go time. Everything you've been waiting for is now going to be revealed. And all hours have something in common. The hour is the culmination of a lot of work an event that you've been preparing for and working toward. The hour is when true character and true purpose are revealed. The, it, the hour is when the testing comes. Every kid here knows what the hour is when it comes to classwork, right? The teacher, whoever it is, lays the test in front of you. That's the hour. Time to find out what's really going on. Time to find out what we have learned. For a lot of people, the actual hour is less worrisome and dreadful than the event itself, right? Oh, I'm so scared of this interview, this work interview, getting the job. I'm scared of uh, uh, something that we might be worried about that we're anticipating. And then when the hour comes, we're like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. But the hour that Jesus is anticipating has already got him sorrowful even unto death. It's going to cause him to start sweating drops of blood as he bows down in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's way worse than just his own thinking about it. Because it's an hour like it's never been revealed before. It's an hour when his father, with whom he's enjoyed this eternally loving relationship with, is now going to have a bit of a breach in it. It's almost hard to talk about the language of it when he's no longer saying, my father, my father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a break. Now he's being treated as the criminal and God's the judge, and he's having to pay for our sins. So Jesus is anticipating that moment, saying, look, it's finally here. And when that hour comes, I want you to glorify me. Now, this is the hour when Jesus will be sifted like wheat until we're given an answer about whether or not he's really the one to fulfill all 350 or so Old Testament prophecies. We're going to find out. It's the hour when the watching world will discover whether the triune God or the devil and all his false gods and all the demonic forces of hell assembled together to rage against God's anointed are stronger. Who's stronger? God of the devil and all of his minions. It's the hour when the promises and the plan and the guarantees will be found out, either fulfilled or fallen. Either this God will be forever feared or forever a laughing stock and the butt of religious jokes. It's the hour when talk is cheap. It's the hour when the universe discovered whether Israel's God 
is a God who's just a big talker, just like all the other gods, or the God whose power and might are infinite and who can turn the world upside down with a whisper. It's the hour when God the Father and God the Son put their character and their relationship on the line. And the very Trinity, the very Godhead, will stand or crumble on the basis of whether or not Jesus pulls this off. Will he do it? This is the hour when the devil will be shown to be either the true king of this world and the ultimate ruler deserving obedience or the liar that Jesus says he is. The hour has come. And Jesus turns to his father in prayer in this greatest of all hours. He can sense it's coming. And so he turns to his father in prayer. And he prays to his father because his father is the one who's decreed this great hour. Where else would he turn? His father is the one who set this plan in place and Jesus volunteered to come and accomplish this plan. And so now they're having a conversation where Jesus is praying to him. They're having communion. Jesus needs strength. He's crying out to his father for some things and we get it recorded in scripture. Words can scarcely convey the significance of this event, the biggest event up to this point in redemptive history that's about to happen. We could argue the second coming will be bigger, but here, so far up to redemptive history, this is the biggest event that has happened. Bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, big. Bringing them into the promised land, big. Setting up a king, uh, big. Jesus coming into the world, big. Jesus going to the cross to pay for sins and put himself in the grave to find out if he actually accomplished everything and whether or not the Godhead will raise him biggest yet. And so we're right at the precipice of that hour. Mike Tyson famously said right before the fight with Vander Holderfield, a reporter asked him, probably something we all recognize, whether he was worried about Vander Holyfield's plan for the fight. And Tyson said, yeah, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Jesus is about ready to get punched in the mouth. A big punch, undergoing wrath for our sin. And we're going to find out what his plan is and whether or not he's going to be able to pull this off. It's the hour, the event, the moment Jesus came for. And here stands Jesus already being crushed in his soul, sorrowful to death, rising to the occasion, doing what no mere human being could do, continuing to walk to the cross. Now, what's happening in this hour? What's so significant about the hour that it occurs and recurs all over John's gospel? And that's what I want us to focus on here, four things in particular. Uh, in this hour, the Father will glorify the Son, in this hour, secondly, the Son will glorify the Father. In this hour, the eternal life of everyone the Father gives the Son is secured. And then finally, in this hour, Jesus will secure his entrance back into glory, verse 5. So I want us to walk through these uh, four things, noticing first that in this hour, the Father will glorify the Son. If you would take a look at verses 1 and 2, Jesus begins this prayer, Father, glorify your Son. And then if you look at verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the hours come in which the son will be glorified and Jesus is praying for that glory to come. Now just quickly, the, the word glory, just a, a, a pretty straightforward definition to ascribe weight by recognizing real substance or value. In Hebrew, uh, the Old Testament, the word glory has to do with weightiness. And what Jesus is saying when he says, glorify your son is, is this. Cause me to be esteemed and praised as significant as one who has weight 
as one who has substance, cause me to be praised on account of what's about ready to take place in this hour. And we might ask, well, how is the Son glorified by the Father? What does this look like? There's many ways we could open this up. I want to unpack it using verse 2 a couple of ways. One way that the the Son is going to be glorified by the Father is this. You have given him authority over all flesh. So God has given the Son authority over all flesh as a response to Jesus fulfilling the covenant of redemption. Now, the covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis, the the pact of salvation, is a doctrine that's taught, and here's a, a quick summary, that before time began, the Father and the Son covenanted together, and the Father had determined whom he would give to the Son to be saved, and the Son had determined that he would go and stand in, in their place and do the work of saving them. And so it's an eternal decree before God ever said, let there be light that has happened. And now we're seeing it unfold. And the agreement was that, hey, if you go do all this work, perfect obedience, standing in their place, going all the way down into death and raised again, then all authority will be given to you. And we see evidence of that in Matthew 28. After the resurrection, Jesus says, what? All authority has been given to me. And Paul in Philippians 2 says, look, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because he humbled himself all the way down to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God's highly exalted him. So as a result of all Jesus' work, we have God the Father giving the Son all authority. And that's one way that Jesus is glorified. And God gives Jesus this authority in order that Jesus might give eternal life to all whom the Father has chosen. Now, this is a big prayer request from Jesus the Son, and it will be answered in the most powerful way very soon in God's gospel, in, in John's gospel. Father, you're giving me this authority to give eternal life. Now make it clear to all people through the cross that I'm the way to eternal life. Father, the hours come. I'm going to go to the cross. Glorify your Son. Give all authority to me. You've already done this in one sense, or it's going to be coming my way in another sense. And grant that everyone you've given to me will receive eternal life, will come to eternal life, and they will, so that the Son is glorified. So first request is that Jesus will be glorified. The second request that Jesus has regarding this hour is that the Son will glorify the Father. If you look at verse 2, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then down in verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, I want to just look at that verse 4 quickly here and start with that. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is pictured as standing back here, kind of looking at all of his work, incarnation, obedience, public ministry, and now crucifixion, resurrection, teaching the apostles, ascension and sending of the Holy Spirit as sort of almost already finished. Saying, look, I've, I've done the work that you've given me to do. Kind of looking at the work as a whole, backing up. So obviously he's confident that he's going to continue all the way to the cross and fulfill what his father has given him to do. But I want us to notice too, how has Jesus done this? How can he say, I've, given, I've, I've, I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do? I've glorified you on this earth. 
Well, one way that he's done this is just by his life. You know, it's interesting if you look at Jesus' life throughout human history, no one has ever obeyed the commandments of God perfectly. No human being has ever fulfilled the purpose for human life that God originally invested in human beings. That is to bring him glory by obeying every last thing that he has revealed. By obeying every last commandment that he's told us to do. No one has ever done that. And what a glory it is to the Father to send his Son into the world and see his Son do what? Something that no one, and I mean no one, has ever even come close to doing. Loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wow, glory to the Father. Loving his neighbor as himself. Glory to God. His mind, his heart, his soul, all of his strength, every aspect of Jesus' being, whether tired and worn out or full of energy, perfectly fulfilling every one of God's commands, just like Adam and Eve were created to do and had the ability to do until they forfeited even the ability to do it on account of their sin. That glorifies God the Father, beloved. We're seeing ideal human life as it ought to have been lived. And also in the hour on the cross, Jesus will glorify his Father by making much of his Father. It's interesting on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What is going on here? Here the Father is glorified as the judge who has authority to pronounce a guilty verdict on all humanity for breaking his laws. And Jesus is acknowledging his Father as the judge, saying, Father, forgive them. Let, it, let, it go. let them go. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here the Father is portrayed as what? The divine law enforcement officer coming to arrest and punish uh, sin and bring the full effect of it upon his son. And then the last, maybe one of the most glorifying statements of the Father from Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here's the, the Father is glorified. Here's the one who makes the final decision about whether Jesus' obedience and atonement were perfect, were enough. And Jesus places himself into the arms of his Father, saying, as it were, you decide. I've completed my work. I obeyed every last jot and tittle of the law. I stood in the place of all the people you gave me, and I declared it's finished. And now into your hands I commit my spirit. And if Jesus has committed no sin, beloved, then God the Father has to raise him because the wages of sin is death. But if you don't sin, then you, death can't hold you. And so Jesus, in honor of his Father, honoring his Father, glorifying his Father, said, Lord, this is out of my hands, as it were. I lay down my life into your hands that come at my spirit. And the great doctrine of Easter was that on that Sunday morning, the third day, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus up. Yes, the work is done. You completed it. It's all finished. Perfect obedience has been rendered and perfect atonement has been offered up. All this makes clear that God the Father is the architect of the cross, the planner of salvation for every believer. And so he's glorified as the one who loves sinners enough to provide us salvation in his son. Well, the third thing I want us to notice about this hour that Jesus talks about is that eternal life uh, is secured for everyone that God the Father gave Jesus. Verse 2, you have given him authority over all flesh, Jesus speaking about himself, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let me paraphrase this prayer to kind of get at things here. 
Father, let us both rise to the occasion in this very hour when you will be the judge and me the criminal so that the authority you have entrusted to me to give eternal life to your people will be made good on and their eternal life will indeed be secured. Now, what's interesting about this eternal life that Jesus speaks of is the way that it's defined. I don't know if you noticed that. He says, this is eternal life. Did you catch that? And he didn't say, this is eternal life, living long in heaven with joy and bliss and perfection. And that's true. But that's not the definition Jesus gives here. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, that's a thought-provoking definition of eternal life. And it's unfolding eternal life, not as just some sort of length of days in heaven where everything's perfect, but as a qualitative life. And the quality of life being, we get to know God. And we get to know Jesus Christ, his son. That's true life. That's the essence of eternal life. And this hour will secure our eternal life, causing us to know God and to know Jesus Christ. Now, this eternal life in one sense already begins because in this hour, we're going to discover things about God that we didn't necessarily know before. They were revealed, hand by the, revealed beforehand by the prophets, but now we're seeing them in fullness. And what we discover about God is pretty marvelous. Now, knowledge of God in this life, there's a lot of people who would say that God is powerful. You could probably go around the world and ask people in an interview, do you believe God is powerful? And they would say, yes, I know that God is powerful. Knowledge of God, right, in general. You can maybe go around and interview people and say, hey, do you believe that God is holy, unapproachable? And people would likely say, yeah, I believe that the God that I serve, whoever God is, that he is holy and unapproachable. Do you believe that God is strict and that God has rules that you have to abide by? A lot of people would say, absolutely, I believe that. But if we ask people, do you believe that a God who created everything perfect and who's crowned creation with human beings as his vicegerents, his little kings, his little gods on the earth to reign and rule over things, when those people spit at him in the face and told him to go fly a kite and said, we're going to do things our way, I think the, the devil's got it right and that you're off base. Do you believe that this God would actually come down in the form of those very same human beings and would live the life that they were supposed to live but can't anymore and actually stand in their place and bear the eternal wrath that they're supposed to bear so that they could be forgiven and given a brand new life and brought back into a relationship with him. Do you believe in that God? People said, where are you getting this from? <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yet that's exactly what we're about to see happen at the cross, beloved. That's exactly what we're about to behold and come to a knowledge of God about as part of our eternal life. We get to know God that way. And then it gets better and better even as we get to heaven, which is for sure an application of this. So eternal life is knowing God, getting to know God at the cross and as he reveals himself. But imagine this, here in this life we're told we see through a glass dimly. We know in part, but imagine what it's gonna be like to know God and to know Jesus Christ in heaven fully and to see him in all of his infiniteness revealed. That's living, that's life. And that's the eternal life that Jesus Christ has come in this hour to secure for us and to give us all whom the Father has chosen. A life where we know God, not just partially, 
Not when we can look at Moses' face and be like, wow, it must be marvelous. But when we can actually be there and experience the very presence of God himself, unmediated in heaven forever, that's living. And that's the life that Jesus Christ has come to secure for us. Corona Beer years ago had a commercial where people are out on the waves surfing, cliff jumping, having a great time, smiling and laughing. And at the end of the commercial, there's a little slogan that says, this is living. And Jesus says, to know God my Father and to know me, that's living. That's life. That's happiness. That's joy. That's being human. That's being truly human just to know me. And beloved, God has revealed himself and called us into a relationship with him and given us this great gift of eternal life so that we can know him. And we got to know something. That's an incredible privilege that none of us deserved. We didn't choose to be saved. We couldn't. And we live in a world that is filled with brokenness, a world where people are trying to do what? Find out what real living is. And nobody's finding it unless the Holy Spirit gives them new hearts. Mother, what an incredible privilege you and I have. It's beginning already now, right? Just to know God, to pray to him, to study him as he's revealed himself in the scriptures and to anticipate this great day when we'll know him in fullness. But for all eternity, we'll still be learning more about his being because it's infinite, hard to fathom, isn't it? We'll never ever get bored with God. Just to know him, that's life. So maybe we go out into the world and maybe some of us in our hearts entertain this notion. If you're like me, you know what? Actually going back to the non-Christian life, part of it is appealing, some aspects of it. And then you come across a passage like this and you see actually this is eternal life, just to know Jesus, just to know God the Father. Uh, why did I ever think the world was actually all that great? Why did I ever think those temporal pleasures were all that wonderful? They're not. Knowing God, that's where true living is. We're going to have to pick which life we want. Either we'll determine that real living is living for the accumulation of possessions, living for the perfect shape and health of our bodies, living for retirement, living for earthly pleasures and comforts, and then perishing in unbelief. Or we'll determine that real living is believing in Jesus, knowing God through him, bearing our crosses now and enjoying heaven when it comes. And no one can make this decision for you, beloved. You can't make it for me. I can't make it for you. Where do you find life? Jesus says life, eternal life is found in knowing him, knowing his father. Where are you finding it? And then finally, in this hour, Jesus will secure his entrance back into glory. Verse five, and now father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the hour that is soon coming is the hour which will bring Jesus home. There is no crown for Jesus except through the cross. There's no way he can get back to glory unless he actually walks through this hour. And what's interesting, what kind of stood out to me is here you've got Jesus standing on the precipice of hell. He's going to go under wrath, God's wrath. There's going to be no mercy, no grace at all. All that's gone. And he'll just be treated as the worst criminal who's ever lived because he doesn't just have one person's sins, but all the sins of everyone who will ever believe in him heaped on his back, credited to his account. And now he's going to be treated like that by a God who's perfectly holy and just and eternal and infinite. 
And as he stands on that cliff, he looks beyond it to the other side of the Grand Canyon, as it were. It says, Father, just glorify me with the glory that I had before I ever came down here. Just make haste that day. This is where you get Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before me endured the cross. And he's got his focus, even before he gets to the cross, on that joy, that glory, that amazing thing that's coming afterwards, being back in heaven with my Father, getting back to that glory, and having a people who are redeemed. Because before Jesus came, there weren't any redeemed. But the joy, ah, we've accomplished it. Now I'm back in glory, but we have a people who are going to be back here too. With all that Jesus has seen in the world, and he'd seen plenty, the religious authorities and all of their grandeur, he'd seen Herod's temple in all of its splendor and greatness. What a, what a sight to behold. A lot of money spent on an incredible building. He'd seen the Roman soldiers and the Roman military might. He'd seen the impressive storms on the Sea of Galilee. And with everything Jesus had seen in the world as he lived here for 33 years or so, he says, I just can't wait to get back to heaven. Now, what does that tell us? Oh, the burden of just wearing flesh. Oh, the burden of being in this world that was originally perfect, but is so fallen and stained by sin in every way. And Jesus is down here ready to go under eternal torments for our sake. And he just has his eyes focused on heaven, said, Lord, just bring me through to you. Bring me back to you. That's my prayer. Give me the strength to walk through this. Now, in one sense, there is no personal application of this. You and I will never, as born-again Christians, ever have to go under God's wrath and, and see what it's like to face that ever. Praise God. It's already been taken care of. We'll never have to bear the cross, capital C, and know what it is to have the joy set before us so we can endure that. But we've each got our crosses to bear, don't we? The Lord makes sure of it. If we're going to follow Jesus, and we are, and we pick up a cross, we deny ourselves, and we follow him. And how do we get through those crosses? How do we walk through these valleys and these difficult places where things in this life may not look so rosy and bright anymore? And maybe the dreams you had when we were 20 are all kind of vanished. And it's like, I'm just getting through one day at a time, Lord. <laughs> Thanks for the last hour. And I hope you can get me through the next hour. How do we do that? We just look to a different world, right? The same way Jesus did. It's not identical. Jesus was accomplishing for us something we could never accomplish for ourselves. And he saw heaven. And if Jesus thought heaven was so great, it could drive him through pain and suffering that you and I couldn't fathom experiencing any exhausted all in three hours time about. If that's what drove Jesus through and heaven was so great, then what is up there? What is coming our way, beloved? That's so incredible that Jesus caught a glimpse of it and it gave him hope and he prayed that it would come soon just to get back to his father's side. It must be amazing. I don't know what you're living for. You can't see my heart. You don't know what I'm living for. But let me just say this. I hope none of us lose track of just how great heaven is. I hope none of us lose track of just how amazing the finish line is going to be when we cross over. Because in this life, we will have trouble. In this life, there will be difficulty. Guaranteed, God will see to it, beloved. But heaven's coming. Glory's coming. Glory that we didn't earn, but Jesus earned for us. And Jesus is praying his way through that to get back to God's 
side, and we're on our way there when he comes back to get us. What incredible redemption. Don't lose sight of it. Because we live in a world that would love to take our focus off heaven and the glory to come. A world that preaches to us through messaging and phones and computers and billboards saying, this is all you have. Make the best of it. And what Jesus shows us is the party hasn't even begun yet. Glory's coming. Just keep on moving forward, running the race. Let's pray.